1: I mean, he produced the Lego Batman movie, so... He did. He's also an excellent Instagram follow.
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Dara Lind and with Emily Stewart from Vox. Uh, Emily has been on the panel before, but without without me. So I'm glad to, <laughs> to be here. I wanted to to talk about the economy sort of broadly and also the prospects for some kind of COVID uh, relief bill. But Emily, I mean, what's the what's the situation in the in the country right now as we head into winter and the and the virus starts spreading? I mean, it seems it seems pretty grim as a short-term situation
1: it's not ideal i think you know if you go back to like march april if you would ask me where we thought we were gonna be now like i kind of thought the economy was maybe going to be worse than it is but at the same time right now it feels like we could be a lot better but we're not right so what happens is we pass the cares act in march i mean this is not new And a lot of it has expired or is about to expire. So the $600 in expanded unemployment insurance ended in July. And now we are seeing some other expanded unemployment um, programs about to sunset at the end of the month, as well as eviction moratoriums wrapping up, forbearance on mortgages, on student loans. And so it feels like right now it's a moment where... If we got stimulus, we could really kind of get to the end of the pandemic. There is sort of a light at the end of the tunnel. The question is, like, what is at the end of the tunnel? And our fate is kind of in our hands. And instead, Congress is is home for Thanksgiving.
2: The economy is better than you expected part, I think, is worth unpacking. Because as far as I can tell, that's driving some of the the lassitude in Congress, right? Because it's like, if you look at the, the stock market, something that I mean, the stock market's not the economy, blah, 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 all that stuff. But the stock market would be crashing if people thought like a recession was on the way. But instead, the stock market's view is like, well, we got these vaccines coming, like it's gonna be all right. Whereas a few months ago, it kind of seemed like there might be like a bigger problem than there than there actually has been. But is that just all due to to CARES kind of saved us.
1: I mean, I don't know if it's all of it, but it's certainly some of it, right? So, like, I've been working on a story on pawn shops, and you would think, kind of intuitively, that they were doing really, they would be doing awesome right now. You in, you know, like, okay, the economy's bad, people must be bringing in their grandma's jewelry all of the time, and and what they will tell you is that that's not what happened because people got the CARES Act money. And stopped having to go to pawn shops. They were able to get their stuff back. And they were also able to buy a bunch of stuff at pawn shops. So, like, I think that's kind of a good proxy for what really has kind of happened. But the question is now, like, again, going back to the pawn shops, they tell you that business is coming back. Why? Because the CARES Act stuff is drying up. And so it it seems like the question now, obviously not all of it is the CARES Act. Like, frankly, we aren't super closed down in a lot of places. People aren't taking the virus as seriously. I mean, but the economy still isn't great for a lot of people. There are still 10 million less jobs than there were at the beginning of the year, right? Right. And
2: I mean, it does seem like part of this is that I think like the high minded thing to say was like, well, there's no trade off between controlling the virus and keeping the economy going. But it, it kind of seems like maybe there like maybe there was and that this irresponsible approach to handling public health had the desired economic I mean, there are fewer jobs than there were, because obviously people, there's like a non-zero amount of public health concern happening. People are traveling less than they did. People are eating out less than they did. But they're traveling more than, like, the writers who I read say they should be doing.
3: Well, and they're also traveling more than they were during the summer, which seems like... You know, there's. There, I think that if we're if we're looking at the economic impact of the pandemic as kind of a function of two things, one being the the moment to moment changes in the economy that are driven by changes in people's behavior, and the other being the how the market thinks the future is going to look, and therefore what they are doing to prepare for it. Then, like in the first respect, we're looking at something more like we were seeing in March, where there's a spike in cases. Some people are shifting their behavior accordingly. Others aren't shifting their behavior now. But like, it's reasonable to expect that as things get really bad for them, they too will shift their behavior. But in the other respect, it's totally, totally different from the last several months, because now we have this light at the end of the tunnel vaccine, you know, news that is maybe making like, analysts who would have been much shakier on what the prospects for the economy looked like in summer, even as the virus itself was more contained, now a little more optimistic. So like, Emily, I'm wondering what that looks like kind of on the employment front. Is what we're seeing more like the kind of sharp downturn of the V in early spring because of the epidemiological stuff happening and and concern that we're about to see a lot less, you know, activity in the restaurant sector and the other kind of places that got hit particularly hard? Or because people aren't as concerned about, you know, a recession lasting years and years and years, are we still kind of in the job recovery phase that we were toward the end of this summer, beginning of this fall?
1: I mean, I think like kind of what is happening, at least it feels like to me right now, is the economy is getting better, but it's getting better slower, right? So you can see jobs are getting added back, but they're getting added back slower. And we also have the virus continuing to spread There is to a certain extent, right, people are tired of sitting at home. I am tired of sitting at home. My risk tolerance has changed personally from April to now, to be completely honest. And I'm sorry, whatever, I'm not going home for Thanksgiving. But like, it is also tricky because right now, sort of, if we really want to contain the virus, we do need to shut down some stuff we would maybe need to shut down bars and restaurants. But of course, you have the other side of the coin is that you can't do that to people unless there is a stimulus bill. We were giving people money to stay home in in April and, and in May. We're not anymore. So what do you say to someone who works at a bar or someone who owns a small business? Like, hey, you gotta shut down, but remember back when we knew we had to help you? Well, now we forgot. And to me, it's
2: this, this is the perversity of the way the vaccine news has impacted the debate, which is that, you know, back in April, say, we didn't know how long the situation would persist. So I think it was, it was reasonable to be concerned that like, well, we can't just keep these programs going indefinitely. Right. We have to put some kind of a time limit on them uh, because they were very expensive. I mean, CARES Act was much bigger than the Obama era stimulus and over a shorter span of time. But now, like we could do that exercise of we can't make these programs indefinite. We need to have an expiration date. But we could instead of be instead of Congress, like pulling an expiration date out of its collective butts, like we could say the expiration date is April. And that would be founded on real information about the state of the public health situation. There could be bonus help for unemployed people, as we had back then, and maybe change the design of the business targeted programs, because you know there was there were some issues there. But you know, basically create a situation where a governor can say, look, it's gonna be annoying to have bars and restaurants closed. People like to do things, but it's not going to ruin anybody's business or ruin anybody's life. And then we can hunker down for one winter and save lives and, and, you know, save lives both in the virus sense and in the the saving livelihood sense. But that is not the direction Congress is taking. Right. I mean, as far as I can tell, it it went there were there were talks before the election in which the carrot was, maybe Trump would want to do a big bill to help him win re-election. Now that's off the table. And Democrats don't want to agree to a small bill for reasons that seem a little obscure to me. And so we've got nothing.
3: One of the kind of facts of the pandemic epidemiologically is that like, the current wave is much more geographically dispersed than previous waves had been. And, you know, there is... There's an argument that the breadth of lockdowns we saw this spring was a worse reflection of the actual geography of where things were really bad uh, than it would be now, but now there's kind of politically a certain resistance built up, you know, in state and local governments to shutting down again. And I, I... I wonder if the same is true in terms of con- in terms of stimulus to a certain extent where like being paid to stay home was itself a signal that like things were really bad and you should stay home and like we understand that the economy is bad we understand that things are exceptionally going not well and without that signal it's y- you can kind of understand a certain amount of people feel that the burden is on them to get back to normal because the government hasn't, you know, kind of sent a financial message that something is wrong. But I also wonder what that, you know, how that's being reflected for members of Congress who, like, their own jurisdictions weren't necessarily getting hit super hard by the virus in spring when they were willing to spend a lot of money. And now it appears that, You know that there are plenty of members of Congress who represent districts that are being pummeled, for whom that just hasn't changed their calculus. And I was wondering whether you guys are seeing any kind of interaction between how things are going in in politicians' home districts and how they're talking about it, or whether it's just become totally a matter of national partisan politics.
1: I I don't know. It seems to me like it's like I literally I cannot explain what what Congress is doing at this point, like. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe Steve... I if Like, honestly, even before, I felt like it was like Steve Mnuchin and Nancy Pelosi. Like, maybe they just like to talk to each other. Like, was it real talks? Was it fake talks? Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm genuinely curious Like if you guys think it's different. But at least to me, it's like I don't completely understand what has been going on this whole time.
2: Well, so I, I picked up a, a term from climate change people called solution aversion that I found helpful in understanding this. And it's that... If there is a problem such that the solution is you need a lot of new regulations on industry and you need a lot of new spending on various things, then people who are conservatives are not gonna want to say, I simply refuse to solve the problem because it violates my view of how the world should work. What they're gonna say is the problem isn't real. And you know, that's really dominated, I think. climate discourse for a long time in the United States, right? Not a, I have a different cost-benefit framework than you do, but this is fake. It's it's being made up. And I think we've seen more and more of that on the virus front, that it's sort of easy for left-wing people to say, okay, the solution to this is unprecedentedly tight restrictions on business, trillions of dollars in new spending, massive expansion of the welfare state. Because those are things left-wing people are open to, right? But right-wing people are not open to those things. The very counterproductive anti-masking movement, which it doesn't cost trillions of dollars to tell people to wear a mask at the store, it's really not a big deal, but it implies taking the public health crisis seriously in a way that has these other implications and has Driven a a deadlock. What I find more baffling at this point is Nancy Pelosi's stance on this, where before the election, I felt like she was doing the thing that people on the internet often say Democrats don't do, which is playing a strong hand in a hard ass way. Right? It was like a big deal will benefit Donald Trump politically. So if she was going to give him this big political win, it was going to accomplish on substance everything Nancy Pelosi ever dreamed of. And it could have worked, right? It seemed like Mnuchin's inclination was to do it. I think probably Trump should have done it, but he didn't. It was bad for the country. It was bad for Trump's re-election prospects. He was defeated. But the flip side is that Pelosi took her strong hand. She, she I, I'm going to botch my poker metaphor, Um, but it didn't it didn't work, right? She no longer has that strong hand because to Mitch McConnell, nothing about that argument is compelling. Like he wasn't buying it in September, so he's really not going to buy it now. And as far as I know, though, he's willing to spend more than zero dollars, particularly on unemployment insurance type stuff, which would be very helpful to people in need. And I don't I don't understand what is being achieved by rejecting it at this point. Like to the point of like her I I think her team has like shut me down and won't answer my phone calls. But it's it's a very puzzling situation to me. Like what's what's the end game of this?
3: I mean, is it as simple as without knowing the outcome of the runoff elections in Georgia? It's possible that, you know, she would not have to negotiate with Mitch McConnell, but rather with majority leader Chuck Schumer, and therefore she's willing to wait until she knows whether that's gonna happen. That could be it. Or
1: just like, what is Mitch McConnell's plan? Like Mitch seems to be like, I may like what nothing has passed the Senate. As much as it can be like, yes, Nancy Pelosi, but it's like, what does Senate Republicans want? Because it feels like they're just like you know, like they are they are a factor here. And I don't know that they, like, have an actual plan either. They certainly like
3: haven't passed one. at least Democrats have, yeah. I, I there is an argument for saying, like, you don't make your people take votes that could be used in attack ads against them if you don't think that they're going to pass. But that doesn't necessarily stop you from having, like someone with, you know, who's like a member of leadership and a longtime incumbent, introduce a bill that can at least serve as a marker that like then makes passage of a future bill more likely without making anybody take a vote on it?
2: Well, I mean, I I guess I should I was focusing on on Pelosi because she was the key sort of negotiator with, with the Trump administration. But it's in part a Schumer question, right? Because a Senate bill would need 60 votes. So Senate Republicans literally cannot pass a bill on their own beyond that anything will split their caucus like anything McConnell gets behind will get fewer than 53 Republican votes so the question becomes are there two dozen Democrats willing to vote for something that Mitch McConnell is also willing to vote for I don't think that House Democrats would scuttle a bill like that they haven't you know Kind of said one way or the other, but the Senators aren't doing anything either and and I mean it's true. I mean, this is what Dara said before, but you know, Schumer wants to win these Georgia races. if they do that, then, if they really hustle, they can write a budget resolution which passes, and then they could do a reconciliation bill which could pass and could do stimulus. But we'd be talking February very optimistically, March possibly more realistically. We're also talking about you need a unanimous vote among Senate Democrats, basically unanimous among House Democrats. And that seems tricky. I mean, at at a minimum, that's a plan that is not going to help anybody January 7th. Right. When they have been furloughed from their job waiting tables or they cut or their hours are cut, but they still have to come in because they're at a 25 percent capacity restriction and nobody can do outdoor dining because it's the middle of winter. It, we just it's just a bleak situation coming. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, I also wish Republicans cared more about the fate of the country.
3: Well, The other thing is, the longer this goes into next year, the more we're looking at a 2009 situation where instead of being the thing you do to clear the decks for major legislation, stimulus becomes the major legislation that you had to spend a bunch of political capital and clock time on. And, you know, I think that there certainly has been I think, you know, it was it was pretty immediately understood among. Democrats right after the election that because they weren't going to have the clear majorities in both chambers of Congress that they thought they weren't going to be spending the year 2021 passing a lot of super ambitious progressive bills. But it's definitely the case that to the extent you want to do anything legislative, you are making that less likely by eating a bunch of clock in the first, you know, in the first hundred days on something that you theoretically could have done in the previous year.
1: Right. I mean, it does feel like this whole, well, maybe we'll get this ideal situation, right? It was the blue wave that we were going to get and it didn't come. And now it's, well, we're maybe win Georgia and it's like, okay, neat. I don't know. Like it, it certainly didn't work out in November. Um, and, and I think it is also important just to remember that, this is ultimately real people's lives that are, that are at stake here. And I think it's easy to talk about these sorts of things. But even yesterday, I wrote a story about, you know, the lack of stimulus. And I started to get emails from people who aren't even waiting until December, you know, the end of December to have a problem. One guy wrote me and said, you know, I was half part time job, half of um, like, you know, I was half like part-time employee and half a contractor. And because of that situation, unemployment has been impossible for me to navigate. I'm getting $69 a week, that sort of thing. And like I think it's important to remember that this is just like real people, and real people are looking at what's going on in Washington and are like, I don't care whose fault it is, just do something because I'm going to lose my home on January 1st.
3: Yeah, I think one of the other impacts that was maybe underappreciated uh, for the first several months of the pandemic of the kind of limited geographic reach is that the places where the economic pain was felt were not congruent with the places that were being hit hardest, you know, because of the breadth of lockdowns initially, because of the kind of job constriction of just the uncertainty. And it's still true that like lots of places, lots of communities are being pummeled by both. But there still are people for whom the economic pain has been longer lasting than the likelihood that they're actually going to contract or that someone they know will contract the disease. And that those two things, in the absence of government intervention, really do have to operate in tension for a lot of people. There are definitely people who think that like the best thing they can do for their community right now is to continue to go out and support local businesses, and they aren't necessarily You know, the last several months would demonstrate that they haven't been wrong and maybe they're wrong now, but that's not necessarily something that we can fault them for. All right.
2: Let's uh, let's take a break and then let's talk about uh, the woman who is going to be part of leading the charge of trying to figure this out.
4: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy.
0: You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So in
2: uh, convenient timing for our taping, I I was a little afraid that we would record this show and then while it was being edited, the announcement would come. Uh, But the the Biden transition has said that they are going to pick uh, Jenny Yellen, former Fed chair, former Council of Economic Advisors chair, to be Treasury secretary. The conventional wisdom meter swung really fast on this one. She was she was nowhere in my reporting you know, as of the week before the election, I I think I threw a line in somewhere on my cabinet speculation post that it was important to remember that Biden himself had not weighed in on any of this stuff yet. And so things would change. So that was my that was my ass covering. um, And I'm I'm glad it was in there. Uh, I, you know, I worked well. Yeah, it was weird because, you know, once she was suggested, it seems like a perfectly obvious choice very well regarded etc etc i think the broad understanding was that she was out of the game um she's she's in her 70s Uh, she has done a lot of stuff in her career served in multiple administrations in various capacities so had been i think kind of written out of the books and you know when she comes back in it's a strong well-qualified choice also Left-wing people had a problem with uh, Lale Brainerd, who had been widely discussed as the sort of other choice in, in ways that I think are totally unfair. And I mean, I just want to say, it's not that there's anything wrong with Yellen as a pick. I mean, with any of these things, there's more than one qualified person. I think it's unfortunate that one of the leading contenders had her name run through the mud a little bit uh, for not particularly good reasons. She has been fighting the good fight as an Obama holdover on the Federal Reserve Committee, voting against bank deregulation stuff, trying to push for more help for people. Um, I don't know, like, w- w- what else do you want anybody to do in their careers?
1: Well, it it does feel a little bit like, you know, when it was like a brainer that was in in the lead sort of it or speculating the lead, you know, then it was Progressives with uh, issues with her, right or wrong, and, and then the minute that that um, Yellen's name came up, it seems like the left also remembered some issues with her, right? Where where you have Joe Biden last week saying. Oh, it's somebody that there's gonna be consensus, I think, that nobody will get really upset. And then over the last few days, it's like, oh, people like started to look at what Yellen has been saying lately, you know, right or wrong. Like I happen to think Yellen is, is a great pick, but like people are gonna find things to pick at the minute that your name comes up, always. And I think that's definitely been, you know, shown here.
2: Where well, I do think Biden's right about Consensus, though, to an extent, is that I, I, Yellen is a bit of a um, an iconic figure, uh, a sort of you know economic policy uh, R B G kind of person. As a as a you know, I mean, a pioneering woman. She was she was the first woman to be the Fed Chair. She was the first woman to be the C E A Chair. Now she's going to be the first uh, woman Treasury Secretary. She is really beloved by a lot of people who have. Worked with her. There are funny Janet Yellen memes on the internet. Uh, She has a cool, you know, like her husband won a Nobel Prize. Yeah, there's just like a lot of a lot of stuff going on, so that you know, tedious pedants like me can say that raising interest rates in December 2015 was not the right idea. But nobody really cares about stuff like that. And she's a, to to the extent that anybody is a well-known figure in central banking. (laughs) Uh, Like that that would be her, you know, and and she really is just like incredibly well liked across the board in a way that I think makes it challenging for anyone to mount really strong objections to her. Although it now seems like Pat Toomey is going to try. So he's said to The Wall Street Journal and then tweeted today that he wants to make sure she confirms that all the Fed's lending authority goes away without, you know, so Steve Mnuchin told the told the Fed that he wants them to stop doing these loans because the CARES Act says it requires Treasury approval. On its face, the new Treasury Secretary can just come in and give the approval back. Uh, but Toomey is trying to say that she shouldn't do that or that it would be illegal for her to do that, which, you know, I think says nothing about her in particular, but it's a reminder that There's nothing you can do to bend over backwards to nominate people who are so well regarded that the opposition party can't come up with reasons to not vote for them. Like, it's just up to them. Right. It's not to say everybody Biden picks will definitely be brought down by Senate Republicans, but Senate Republicans just have an autonomous decision. To make about this. And, you know, Toomey's just one guy, but he's actually one of the more engaged and bipartisan people in the Republican caucus. So it doesn't seem like a great sign for her, or frankly, America, that we're coming up with sort of nonsense reasons to complain about her.
3: Right. I mean, this is going to be one of the big questions of the next phase of the transition as we get, you know, really as as the kind of rest of the cabinet gets filled in as and as we start getting signals from Senate Republicans about whether they're going to pick confirmation fights and if so, on whom, like, it's impossible to nominate a slate of candidates that will prevent Senate Republicans from obstructing against them. Like, that's the Merrick Garland strategy. It didn't work. It is possible to persuade them that there are some people who it's more important to block than others and that therefore they have to, tr- to have to kind of pick their battles. What I think the question is is, is sensitivity toward who's going to be a kind of particular lightning rod in confirmation hearings congruent with who is most likely to be conservative once confirmed in terms of taking executive action? Because if you're already thinking about like, we have to pitch our nominees so that they don't fail in a closely divided Senate, then you're really giving up on the prospect of like uh, that, that, that same dynamic is there, but much more so when it comes to legislation. So if you're looking at nominations as something that you're going to have to navigate very carefully, that's the only thing you're going to get through Congress. And so ideally, if you're thinking about this as the Biden administration, you want the set of people who are going to sail through on like 98 to zero confirmation hearing or confirmation votes, and then be just as aggressive on policy as they would be if they'd squeaked by. And I don't think that that set of people exists. But it's kind of an interesting it's, it's something that I think is an instructive lens to think about not just how do the politics of these nominations play out, but like, what kind of things are we likely to see from them in office? And And, you know, in that respect, I'd love to hear more about how you guys think Janet Yellen, if confirmed, is like what what sorts of things we would be likely to see from her at Treasury.
1: I was talking to someone about this over the weekend and basically um, his take was like, listen, her... Priority is going to be Joe Biden's priorities, ultimately, right? Like, she's not somebody who I think is, like, really going to rock the boat. Um, and Biden has said the virus is priority number one. So, like, well, how does that translate at, at Treasury? It's, you know, dealing with, you know, maybe some if we get more PPP stuff or, you know, if, if the Fed program comes back, things like that. You know, I do think like reading through today, at least some of the Wall Street reaction, there is very much a sense that, that the markets are, are fine with this. As Fed chair, she was real careful not to spook the markets, as all Fed chairs are. Um, so Republicans should check in with their donors, maybe, uh, because their donors probably are, are just fine with, with Janet Yellen, would, would be my guess.
3: I love the implication that Republicans need to be more sensitive to the demands of their Wall Street donors if they want to be less obstructive in Congress,
0: because
3: that totally goes against the conventional wisdom that divided government is good. I think
2: that some of the original Rahm Emanuel theory of change was that conservative-leaning business interests could could generate actual votes in Congress for things like an economic stimulus measure that would be good for the economy, be good for sales, be good for profits, things like that. And so a lot of sort of left-wing frustrations with early Obama were on the idea that like Rom had taken certain things off the table. But his idea was, we're taking some of these provocations off the table. And in exchange, we're going to mobilize whether it's Wall Street that wants a fast recovery or uh, employers who want their workforce legalized or fossil fuel interests who don't want the hammer of arbitrary EPA rulemaking uh, are supposed to round up a dozen Republican votes for things. And what we learned is that that doesn't work. There's an autonomous logic to congressional politics that is relatively insensitive to these things. And also that donors are not that narrowly focused on their interests in certain ways, right? I mean, you definitely saw the the small donors who fueled the resistance were angry about Donald Trump, but not necessarily the objects of hardship in, in the Trump years. I mean, it was like a psychic hardship. And you saw that, right? The the Wall Street people who funded Mitt Romney very lavishly were not actually suffering under the Obama regime, but they, they were angry at being cast as the villain of American society. And they liked the idea of this private equity guy who was going to cast them as, as the heroes. And so it's it's challenging, I think, to count on everybody thinking about their real interests to drive this forward. And so I, I'll say on Yellen, you know, one of the reasons why progressives preferred her to Brainerd is a belief that she will be a tougher Uh, financial regulator. I'm not sure that the evidence for that is incredibly overwhelming, but they like the way she threw the book at Wells Fargo uh, when she was Fed chair. They like that she is an academic, that her husband is also an academic, that they don't see him that intermixed in the world of rich people and businessy type stuff in contrast, I guess, to how some of Obama's appointees are seen. Although Tim Geithner, who who progressives wound up hating, was like a career bureaucrat um, up until he left the administration. So I think this stuff can be not quite as telling as one would like it to be. But, you know, um, Elizabeth Warren was really effusive in her praise of Yellen, and I think really pushed for Yellen. And that's based at least on Warren's belief that Yellen is going to be a lot more sympathetic to her view of financial regulation than some of the other contenders up there would be, which is a topic. I mean, normal people, I think, have completely stopped caring about financial regulation after it being hot like 10 years ago. But, you know, it is an important aspect of Treasury's portfolio. They have a lot of discretionary authority that was given them uh, by Dodd-Frank to do things I think, unfortunately, they're not the kind of things that help normal people with their day-to-day lives, right? To say that the the FSOC is going to designate more large non-bank financial institutions as requiring uh, additional capital buffers is not, I think, the drama of executive action that people are hoping for, but it is important in substance. I, I said to uh, Ezra, you know, on our last pre-election show that I thought financial deregulation under Trump had been something that I wish I had covered more. It was a bigger deal than, you know, I kind of made it out to be. So so Yellen should be a corrective to that, which is important on substance. But we're, what we were talking about before is people are going to be facing a really tough winter. And I don't know that there's a lot that the Treasury Secretary can do unilaterally that will help with that. You need to make a deal with, Congress, I think it would be odd for her to be the point person on negotiations like that. I assume Biden will have people on his team who are more uh, versed in legislative deal making. On the other hand, Mnuchin became the point person on that and he had no experience in anything.
3: I will say a little more. I mean, in, in terms of, you know, the Biden administration thinking about like actually appointing, you know, ledge affairs point people. It is, it has been a while. Well, it's, it's actually been a few decades since we've had a president who was who spent a lar- long amount of time in Congress before being the president, and you know, even though Obama came out of the Senate, one of the raps on him that turned out to be entirely borne out by events was that he lacked some sort of fundamental understanding of Hill deal making that made it difficult for him to get what he wanted out of either side in Congress, and obviously that. It, and one of the people who was one of the cam- within the Democratic Party that was making that critique was the faction of. Then Vice President Joe Biden. So it it definitely is going to be the case that, you know, Biden's own inclination is probably going to be to have to put more emphasis on Hill outreach than we've seen with either of the last two presidents. And it, you know, maybe as apparent as it's been for that whole period that Mitch McConnell, you know, can be swayed by no man and is operating out of a very rigid playbook, like it's possible that the imaginative space of, you know, what kind of deals can be made will expand a little bit when you have someone who is so interested in deal-making at the helm.
1: Well, it, it does feel also like, and this is a little bit of a pivot, but, you know, when we talk about Congress and congressional inaction, it does feel like in, in the past several years, we increasingly do look to the Fed, you know, which Janet Yellen was the chair of, and, and you know Treasury and executive action to 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 act on the economy and, and are putting too much in kind of in be like look at the Fed, look at Jay Powell, like please do a thing, because Congress won't and and you know <laughs> which is you know yay that the Fed is like willing to try and that maybe in Yellen you know you are going to have somebody who is going to try to try but your your people's hands are tied with when you're not in Congress, you can't do a lot on the fiscal end of things. Well,
2: so this is my big concern about Yellen as an advisor is that, you know, I had Carl Smith on, and we were talking about the prospect for getting Congress to do something. And, you know, what he was saying, which I think is true, is that the way you could get some money for some progressive spending ideas would be to give in on some Republican tax cut ideas. And it's not obvious if, you know, that like log roll, you could see that as more moderate or as more progressive than holding the line. It, it just kind of depends. But I do think that we know from Yellen, you know, she signed on as a, a like a chair or, you know, some kind of honorific uh, to uh, the fix the debt group. She's spoken about the unsustainable long term budget trajectory, uh, not by any means unusual. I mean, this is what Barack Obama thinks about fiscal policy. It's what uh, Jason Furman, who ran Obama's National Economic council thinks. It's what I think most of the leading Democrats in economic policy think, which is that it would be so bad to further reduce taxes that it's worth giving up on the chance to spend money on things that might help people. And now I think if you talk to people who are not Democratic Party economic mavens, but to people who are climate mavens or to people who are poverty mavens, like all all these other things, they might have a different view of that and be like, no, like my problem that I work on is actually really important. And if the, you know, it's like you got to find a way to get it done. Right. And like version 1.0 of Get It Done was sweeping majorities, DC statehood, blah, blah, blah. Failing that, Get It Done is talk to Pat Toomey about giant business tax cuts. But most Democratic economists, and I think Yellen is just in the mainstream of that camp, are resistant to that idea. They want to be responsible. Their idea of a deal would be, we agree to cut entitlements, Republicans agree to raise taxes, and now having made the long-term fiscal picture better, we can afford to do more short-term stimulus. I don't want to put all that on one person because it's just it's just a broad consensus that she is a, a high profile proponent of but to me that's a recipe for a failed administration that like they're not they're not going to get a deal because this is exactly what obama tried and it didn't work and now maybe they've all decided well this didn't work so we should try again another way but i feel like you take those same economists and then you plug in joe biden's view that he's like buddies with senate republicans and they're gonna knock back a few drinks and work it all out and i mean this has always been the problem with biden to me and seemingly made more cute now that like that this is not
1: gonna work well but i mean it sounds like to me that it's more of a biden problem than it is janet yellen like is there literally a single human being that that biden could put in place as treasury secretary that would change his thinking like are we no, going i mean obviously
2: yeah. the, the the picks reflect the the president-elect you know i i mean it's just you know i but but you know there's been there's been talk of uh jared bernstein of heather bushy getting not treasury secretary they're they're resumes aren't good enough, but some kind of good economic policy jobs. And I, and I hope we see them, uh, in NEC and CEA in some capacity, just people who have a different perspective on what's actually important here, because I don't know, like it's, it's a weird situation because I, I, I don't want to exaggerate the economic problems. Like a lot of us are, we're working on zoom and, we're doing okay <laughs> but it's it's really tragic the level of intense suffering that some people are in for as a result of you know just like total failure to contain the virus or do anything on the economy
1: i mean i feel like it always now just comes back to the same thing where it's like at the beginning we were like do we pick the economy or the virus to fix and now we just fixed neither and, and, and you know and here we are it's almost thanksgiving
2: not Great. All right. Let's, let's take another break. Uh, we're going to do, do a white paper. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com
4: wonder.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash offer. all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash offer.
3: So this week's white paper is titled One Group, Two Worlds, Latino Perceptions of Policy Salience Among Mainstream and Spanish Language News Consumers. It's written by uh, Barbara gomez Aguimaga. Uh, of the University of Nebraska Omaha. And this is a fairly straightforward, like the last couple of weeks we've dealt with these, you know, very innovative data sets, complicated theories of change. This is a pretty conventional looking at how much coverage of various issues exists in Spanish language and English language news outlets in places that have both. And comparing that to how Latinos who consume that media think about how important issues are and finding that like, while, you know, there's, there's a, this can often kind of get turned into a debate in punditry, but in the, in the academic literature, there's something of a consensus that like, okay, issues of policy salience to Latinos include immigration, but also healthcare, you know, some of the kind of pocketbook stuff, you know, that is ostensibly race neutral. The, findings of this paper are that the salience of issues like healthcare, for that matter, race relations, doesn't differ between Latinos who consume Spanish language and English language news, but that on the topic of immigration, where Spanish language news has traditionally covered it a lot more than English language news has, uh, Latinos who consume that news are more likely to see it as a fundamentally important issue to them, and that this, you know, obviously interacts with whether the person themselves was born in the U.S. and whether they know someone who has had personal experience with the issue. But like even robust of that, what media you're consuming and what that media is talking about is correlated. And who knows which direction this causal arrow goes with whether you yourself see that issue as important.
2: You know, one thing I I just I always love papers on media effects. And I was glad to read this one because I think it helps make some sense out of the somewhat puzzling kind of longstanding view that it's really important to talk about immigration in to win Latino votes when voters by definition are citizens, they're definitely not undocumented. And, and it's been the kind of thing where, you know, everybody who works in that community says that like you have to address immigration issues, that it's important, their explanations of exactly why that is have been a little bit all over the map and not always super duper duper convincing to me. But this is a good reason, right? That like, if you are doing Spanish language media, you do have a lot of immigrants, including undocumented immigrants in your potential audience, which is a good reason to pay more attention to these topics than English language media has and so then if the topic is going to be very salient in Spanish language media then everybody who consumes Spanish language media is going to like pay attention to it right like it, so it, it's it's actually incredibly logical when you when you put it that way. And then it's like borne out. But it's not to say that's the only reason, you know, people have relatives, people have friends, there's questions of identity, blah, 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 blah. But it's like, even if you are Puerto Rican, right, and nobody in your family is impacted per se by immigration policy status, if you are living in Florida and consuming Spanish language media, and they're trying to target the whole range of Spanish speaking people, in Florida, they're just, they're going to be overweight on immigration relative to English language media. And so then like what you say about this is going to be in front of people and it's going to matter. And if you want to get attention, you want to get covered, you should talk about immigration. And I just, I now feel that it's not that I changed my mind (laughs) exactly, but I feel like I have a much clearer understanding of what's going on and, and how these causal mechanisms are supposed to work. Um, and I don't know, that's that's good. That's, that's nice to see. I mean,
3: the obvious kind of question that this raises, though, is what is the size of the population? What are the demographics of people who are consuming Spanish language news and also voters? And that's, you know, I was looking at the dates on the sites in the lit review here because 10 years ago, it really seemed like Spanish language news, especially Spanish language local news, was a huge growth market in areas of the country where there was a, either a long established Spanish language population, but kind of media was pivoting to like look at new audiences uh, like Florida, or for that matter, places where there were growing numbers of Latinos who could now be served so that like there was an appetite for Spanish language news in the South. And of course, what's happened in the last decade, is that local news has continued to collapse, and that has absolutely affected Spanish language news as well. And like it, it's co- that that trend has coexisted with a more up in the air debate about what are what kind of media are young Latinos consuming? Are they because they are more likely to be English fluent than their parents? Are you know if they're kind of second? Second generation, are they going to be consuming English language media? Are they more likely to be consuming online media as opposed to print? All that kind of thing. But, like, while we don't have conclusive answers on that, we absolutely do have conclusive answers that, like, it's not really easier to sustain Spanish language local news right now. And that's really had a big impact on the quality of media coverage because logically, when you have two people trying to put a newspaper out, you can't do the kind of sustained you know specialized coverage that you associate with like high quality policy journalism i was I, I talked i was talking a few years ago to Pilar Morero who was for years and years the immigration correspondent for La Opinion and she really pointed out to me that the quality of immigration Journalism in Latino in in Spanish language media under Trump had been drastically worse than under Obama b- because there were just fewer people covering it, and those people who didn't necessarily have the depth of expertise to be able to cover it well, and that has day to day implications for like how. Well, people understand the world they're interacting with, how people who are themselves unauthorized or who know people who are like assess their kind of risk profile, but also for what they think about who is in office and who is going to be in office. And I thought about that a little bit when, you know, there was some coverage of the uh, of the idea that like democrats were still sc- that that latino some latinos were still skeptical of joe biden because of obama's immigration record even when the alternative was donald trump that is a more plausible outcome if you're someone who was consuming very informed journalism about obama's deportation record in the first term of his administration and where that kind of coverage hasn't been available to you for the last few years
1: Well, I think also just, you know, to tie it a little to the election, like what we have seen a little bit is that a lot of Democrats did miss what was going on with the Latino vote. And part of that is just not being able to communicate with people, whether it's, do you have enough Spanish language polling, right? Or before this, I was reading Shereen Ghaffari over at Recode had a a great story about um, fake news spreading in, in Spanish. And people not knowing that that was was happening, right? So you're seeing all of these Spanish language messages that Joe Biden is a socialist and and Hugo Chavez supports him or whatever. And I think that this all kind of gets to like, sometimes it's really easy if you're not a Spanish speaker, if you're not an immigrant, if you're not Hispanic, that you just completely miss what is going on um, in the Spanish language. And like, it's also a good reminder that... uh, Latino media is a good place to kind of refute that for Democrats. If there is, you know, fake stuff out there that they want to get at, this is a good avenue to do that. Well,
2: and the the flip side, combining your points, is that if Democrats had traditionally been relying on a fixed quantity of Spanish-language news sources that they were maybe not paying a lot of attention to, but for whatever reason their editorial line was politically helpful to Democrats. And then those sources started to fade in significance, right? Because, you know, this is an academic study, so it's always backward looking. So like a new online publication that started in December of 2019 and is run by MAGA fanatics in Spanish, is not going to be in their sample, right? A big change to the Spanish language media landscape could have big political Impacts. And it's definitely not the case that nobody in the Democratic Party was spending a lot of time looking at the ratings of the Telemundo affiliates in uh, Laredo and McAllen and seeing if they were going down or how newspapers in these secondary Texas cities circulations were changing, what kind of online news sources people are turning to. And there's just no, I mean, you see in in English language, like the ethic and spirit and ideological temper of new digital startups can just be really, really different from older incumbent organizations. And, you know, someone, we're going to have to go back and do a lot of digital content analysis and try to understand i think I think liberal people have been quick to break out the label of disinformation for any kind of Spanish language story that they think reflected poorly on Democrats. But, you know, it's 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 media, right? It's content about Biden, about the left, about the Democratic Party's relationship to socialism, about the meaning of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's just probably not going to be the same as what the Spanish language media. That's in this study,
3: right? I, I think that you know when you say like backward-looking content analysis, I don't know how possible that's going to be because so much of the political communication among Latinos in the 2020 cycle appears to have happened through like WhatsApp chat groups, um, and it's going to be just very difficult to to model. You know, it's it's one thing when you can say, okay, we know that a lot of this stuff is happening via kind of dark social word of mouth. But we know that these are the major media outlets that tend to, you know, reach those same people. And so what is happening on Fox News is probably a decent reflection of what is happening in kind of discussion groups among people of that demographic. It's quite another to say when there isn't a dominant national media hub, when local media has been traditionally the best servers of the community, but is now dealing with all of these economic headwinds, what are the kind of above ground things that we can use as a reflection of what kind of stuff is going through these WhatsApp groups and how people are assessing what it, how important issues are based on that?
2: I I, I ran a, a piece in, in my, my newsletter today by um, a friend of mine named Aaron Strauss, who, you know, studies uh, different kinds of, you know, campaign effects sizes. And, you know, he was saying that Democrats need to think about a way, not just in Spanish speaking communities, but but this is a very salient example of how to sort of program for the WhatsApp channel, how to encourage people to do that kind of relational organizing, that if this is how people, particularly people who are less politically engaged, right, if they get their information through informal side doors. Because the tradition would be, okay, so you don't care about politics, but you watch local TV news because it has sports scores, it has the weather report, and maybe some cool crime stories. But you see political stories there. So you have low levels of political information and they're dominated by local TV news. If today you get your weather in an app, you get your sports scores in an app, you get your traffic in an app, you probably don't consume any news at all, right? And so the stories you get because you don't need to sit through the boring politics news to get the information you care about. So all the information you have is what your friends and families are texting you or WeChatting you or sharing on Facebook. And so you have to like mobilize people to, to do that, to evangelize through the mediums of communication that people are actually using.
3: Yeah, I wasn't planning to turn this into a newsletter plug, but that essay has been informing a lot of my thinking on this. It's a good essay. People should check it out.
2: There you go. Um, all right, um, I think we should we should wrap up here because uh, got places to go. Uh, but thank you so much, Emily, for joining us, and uh, thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer, uh, Jeffrey Geld, and uh, we will be back after Thanksgiving.